If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with... Steve Melching. Darren Docterman. Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 Movie live. You should see the expressions. The only way to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. Coming soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. (laughs) Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. A critical rescue mission. We've lost an engine. Teams Riker with a mysterious outcast. I find you attractive. And leads to a forbidden affair. Where is Soren? In custody. Now, a clash between two cultures. Don't do this. Soren! Forces Riker to sacrifice his career. I can't just leave her there. They'll give her these psychotectic treatments. I have to help her. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. This is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room with special guest Doug Drexler. Today's episode, The Outcast. And we're thrilled to have Doug back. Doug's been on the show a couple of times. He's uh, in a very rarefied company. He's one of uh, the few Oscar winners we've had on the show. Of course, uh, we give him an Oscar just for having been... uh, one of the proprietors of the Federation Trading Post. In fact, I, uh, I, 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 I realized we should have been doing Journey to Babel today because I, I was cleaning my office. And this won't mean anything to people who watching, aren't watching on video, but I have here a copy of Star Trek Giant Poster Book Number 4. Wow! And, nice. uh, and then there's a huge a Journey to Babel critique. By Doug Drexler and Anthony Fredrickson. Wow! Uh, but of course, we're not here to talk about Jerry the Battle. We're here to talk about the out, the out, uh, the outpost, the outcast. Outcast. Proud uh, of that poster book. I'm proud of it. You should yeah, you be. Should be. Look, this was on the wall of my room as a kid. You can tell because it's ripped up. But uh, it's Michael saw, and Sarah. I, and I saw pictures. From, I saw pictures from the makeup department on the motion picture. And they had one of our posters on the wall. Yep. Where we had a poster with the three of them, you know. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, that was like one of the first, really. Here, the look, first. there's a whole article on Romulans by Doug Drexler. I'm going to have to read that. I wrote that one, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were very prolific. I mean, was that like 40 years ago? <laughs> oh, my God. Let's see what the date in the uh, uh -oh. masthead is. I'm going to look in, and look in here. So let's see. Don't, here. Ask, a don't ask questions you don't want answers to. Here, here we go, Doug. <laughs> this was published. Um, this is Captain's Log, Voyage 4, start date 7612. Wow. So this was uh, yeah. July. Wow. Uh, uh, that was 45, uh, no, was 45 years 1st, ago. 45 years ago. That's crazy. Yeah, this was 19th, the end of 1976. And, um, and it, it, it's great. And in fact, there's even a trivia quiz, Doug. I wonder <laughs> if you could pass it now. I'm sure you could. <laughs> Maybe I, I used to write the trivia quizzes. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. I wonder if you now, forty years later, you still know I the answer. I would think he would. Do you want to know? Can we do before we do our oh, commentary? Let's see. Okay. Let's see. The episode is a balance of terror. Uh, it's uh, a, a, so even this, it's like a, you called it a balance of terror, which is interesting. And Captain Kirk has offered Mister Spock a book of reference, the legend on the cover, please. Oh, uh, oh, man. Well, it has to do with comets, right? It was a book of comets. I don't remember exactly what the, what, what the, I, you know, there was a day when I could tell you uh, within the first few notes who wrote it, when it aired, and right. all of that stuff, you know. We all could, and now those days are over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm forgetting everything. Well, the answer you have here is 1,771,561. Which what? is really don't destroy the one named James Kirk, but okay. What? Uh, what was that? Star Trek Alien was well known for his role as the Outer Limits control voice. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah. well, you know what? I'm sorry. You're, you're reading the wrong one. These are the these, oh, these, these, are, the answers, these are the answers to the previous <laughs> issue. These are the answers to the previous <laughs> issue. But the That's answer they make no sense. But the answer was Vic Perrin. Two, was Finnegan's uniform from Shore Leave, tunics designed for the cage. Yeah, so the, 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 they give you the answers from the previous issue. Right. Oh, okay. Yes. You have to wait that I'm long. I'm sorry about that. I should have known that you your Trexpert bona fides have not <laughs> gone away in all these years. They're unsullied. <laughs> okay, so before we start, I just want to ask you, you picked the episode, The Outcast, Next Generation. Tell us... Um, you know, and we're trying to curate, as we say, not the usual suspects for these briefing rooms. I'm curious from your perspective, why the outcast? Well, you know, Star Trek has always had guts, always very gutsy, you know, and they like to tell morality tales. And I think this one is, is so far ahead of its time. I mean, at the time that they did it, it was... I, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost like it's written for today right? with a lot of the things going on. I mean, we're having, uh, 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 you know, people who are binary or they're not he or they're not she or they're having sexual sex, you know, reorientation. Back in 19, what year was it? when 1992. This was March 16th, 1992. You know, I think that in 1992, this was not to the general public an obvious thing to do a show about. Today, if you did it, it would almost seem a little bit too on the nose, you know? Right. But the fact that they were so far ahead of their time, it, uh, it, it's, it's startling uh, uh, how, how brave the show really was. 
Great. Well, let, let's talk more about this when we're into the episode. So the episode is The Outcast. It premiered March 16th, 1992. It was written by Jerry Taylor, directed by Robert Shearer, and stars uh, Melinda Kalea as Sauron. Not to be confused with Sauron. That was Malcolm McDowell. That's very different. And uh, let's or, take or, a look. Uh, or Sauron, with, the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that's right. Along with Doug Drexler at episode number... 117, The Outcast. Oh, I should count it down, I suppose. Yeah, for all those uh, following along at home that want to press the button. Uh, in three, two, one, go. Now, Doug, you've told this story before, but it's, it's worth repeating, of course, which is when you first saw this model of the Enterprise uh, in Bob Justman's office and how spectacular it was. Yeah. Too. Oh my God. I mean, I was so delighted that he would even show it to me and I'll never forget it. There's some things that just totally, you know, stay with you as if they just happened yesterday. And it was a little, it was a small wooden model that Greg Jean had made and that Greg had actually drawn all the windows onto the ship with a pencil. But I, and I remember Bob held it up and he said, not a straight line on it. And in producer <laughs> speak, that means expensive, expensive right? Yeah. yeah. Just like Takai. Here in this episode, we see this is an androgynous race that has one gender. And uh, at the time it was produced, as uh, Doug already mentioned, it was a very gutsy episode. But even uh, John Frakes was saying that he didn't think it went far enough because they were so obviously cast with women. Um, uh, and, and quote, he, he had told me at the time, I didn't think they were gutsy enough to take it where they should have. Soren should have been more obviously male. We've gotten a lot of mail on this episode. I'm not sure it was as good as it could have been, um, if they were trying to do what they call a gay episode. Right. And, um, now of course you got to put yourself in the shoes of in 1992, this is before gay marriage was legal. Uh, it was very, uh, controversial subject, you know, even politicians, where we say their their opinions evolved on the on the subject, and it, Star Trek was getting a lot of pressure to do a quote unquote uh, uh, gay episode, or at least address homosexuality in the future. And um, you know, Roddenberry had talked about possibly having characters hold hands. Rick Berman was worried that that kind of didn't really address the issue. And for a long time, they were wrestling with how to deal with this in, in Star Trek, and uh, this kind of is there an answer? And as you were saying, Doug, it's a very inventive sort of Twilight Zone approach to, um, you know, not dealing with this issue head on, but dealing in a more Star Trek way. Yeah, I'm, one of the things about this show, if you look back at the original series, if people, if kids today watch the original series, that multiracial male and female bridge crew means nothing today. Right. But in 1966, that was a huge statement. It's the same thing here. You know, you can watch this here uh, today for the first time and think, well, it's very timely, but really doesn't everybody do something like this now? You know, uh, you have to uh, think about what it looked like when it first aired. I think it's easy to look back on the show and critique it and say that they didn't go far enough. They were... I think the show's pretty damn brave for what for its day. Well, one of the things that uh, TNG was uh, moderately successful for, and 
original series was extremely successful at is using analogy rather than direct uh, you know, correlation to uh, modern problems. And uh, I think that was, that was uh, one of the strengths that let the original show get away with a lot of stuff. You know, as always, uh, Roddenberry used the Jonathan Swift uh, model. Yes, of, this is exactly that. Of portraying, you know, a, a problem in, uh, in different, uh, different examples rather than, you know, exactly the, you know, the same uh, project. Um, well, I wonder what the wig bill for this episode was. <laughs> He used well, the Wall of Galaxy question, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you, you said is absolutely true. I mean, you have to keep in mind, this was made 30 years ago. This is virtually 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, three decades, which makes it sound even longer. Um, <laughs> and uh, opinions and um, culture evolves. And, you know, this was first-run syndication. And, I, you know, you could absolutely, you can't compare it to where we are now to where Star Trek, what Star Trek was doing then. I mean, Michael Pillar said to me at the time about this episode, I was very happy with the outcast. I thought Jerry Taylor did a marvelous job on the script. And to me, this was the turning point of the season. This is where I thought we started doing excellent television again. We'd been the target of a concerted organized movement by gay activists to put a gay character in the show. When it came, what it came down to was Roddenberry had been barraged by letters and had discussed with us before his death the possibility of having two men hold hands in some scene, which was totally irrelevant to the issue of homosexuality. I don't think, nor did Rick, Rick Berman, that was an appropriate way to do the story that addressed issues of sexual intolerance, which I felt was really the broader issue. And so that's what we decided to do. And we decided to tell a story that was about sexual intolerance. The twist I thought turned out very well. And, you know, this is absolutely true that, you know, I think that Frakes would have done anything they threw at him. You know, he, uh, you know, he's not somebody who's like, I wouldn't have kissed a man back then. You know, right. it's like he would have done whatever was asked of him because that's the kind of guy he he is and he is. And, and um, uh, I think he, I think he's understandably very proud of the episode. Just, you know, this again, it's, it's like you said, the perspective of hindsight. Um, I think that's a great analogy when you look back. The original Star Trek doesn't look groundbreaking in some ways through the lens of today, but if you understand what 1966 to 1969 television was like, it's remarkable. You know, you have to wonder if they could have done this show if the show had been network. Mm -hmm. The fact right. that they were syndicated gave them more leeway. Absolutely. Tell us about this set, Doug, what it was like. I mean, this is uh, one of the more remarkable sets yeah. on the stage. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it was, I, you know, I came on the show as a makeup artist, and uh, which I was beside myself. I begged Mike Westmore to let me come work on the show. But the bonus, the, the bonus was getting to live on the Enterprise. Right. And I was, uh, I, mean, I mean, you have many, many hours of waiting around when you're a makeup artist on the show. And I used every minute of that to look at every bit of it. That's how I was, I was so blown away by Mike's graphics. You know, if you were in engineering and you were able to get right up on them, you could see this one, he wasn't faking it. You know, it really was all worked out and thought out. Uh, you know, they're sitting right now. It, it's wonderful because they have this problem, definitely the best shuttle that we ever had on the show, which was built from shuttles that were in Star Trek V. Right. And I think it was, 
it was Rick Sternbach's job to take the Star Trek V shuttle and cut it down and, and make it reflect that he did an absolutely awesome job. What was stupendous about it was that that whole door came down in the back mm -hmm. and it was complete on the inside. And you could go in the shuttle, sit down and look out that window and see an almost complete hangar bay. I think it was like Hangar Bay 3, which is one of the smaller ones. But, uh, you know, I, I once had a conversation uh, with Michael Kuda where uh, it was about coming to work uh, in the in the art department. And I was, you know, a, a giddy fan working on the show. And, you know, I just come from, you know, one of the biggest movies that, uh, in Hollywood at the time. And I didn't care that anyone knew, you know. <laughs> but Mike was very worried about that. And he dragged me down the corridor, pulled open the hangar doors, and the shuttle was sitting in there and all the panels were lit and we went in there and he sat in the pilot seat. I sat in a co-pilot seat and we talked about what the possibility was of coming to the art department and also the politics of being a goofy fan while you're working in the show. But it was just this otherworldly experience. And then I realized that I said, hey, Mike, you realize that we're doing that scene from 2001 where the two astronauts are in the pod hiding from Hal. Right. <laughs> and he looked at me and we both burst out laughing. And I think that that was like from that moment on, we were like brothers after that. <laughs> it was an incredible moment. But it's just this world within worlds thing. I mean, imagine you're coming down the corridor, you go into the hangar bay, which is almost complete. The shuttle is there. You go inside the shuttle. You know, it's just, I was, I was, in heaven working on show yeah i mean Who other than heaven? planet hell that was the biggest set planet uh, hell <laughs> please yeah. please and cat pee. people ask me what it's like on set and i go well you smell cat pee right <laughs> <laughs> yeah there were, and now, there, there were cats all over the place on the back lot and and the reason for that of course is because they killed the mice and the rats so most studio lots have That's a lot exactly of, right. lot of, lot of, lot of cats um on them which is the first thing you notice but the good news is all these lots do have people who are in charge of keeping the uh, the cats healthy and looked after and well-fed. Uh, so this is, of course, Ten Forward, which was built for the second season. It's very interesting to look at because, of course, now that set would be built with a green screen and they would just drop in, you know, Starfield or whatever. But at the time, it was much cheaper and um, there's a black duvetine back there, you know, basically. Well, you know, it was to... to, to to roto out those windows and put warp stars in there was expensive yep. for them at the time. So it was kind of funny whenever they wanted to have a conversation, whether it was a runabout or in 10 forward, they'd stop the ship so they could have, they could do it and not spend right. a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, now it's, it's fairly routine, but at the time, yeah, it, it saved a ton of money by not having to put anything in those windows that required VFX. Um, it's so, so here interesting we how well those little bits of mylar really, they're beautiful. They really yeah. work. They look great. I mean, if you're looking at the windows, you get there's something wrong with you because you pay attention to the story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and of course, we see the beginning of this potential romance between Riker and, and Soren going on. Um, and, uh, you know, Jerry Taylor, to her credit, wrote this episode. She was very proud of this episode. Um, Jerry has been very quiet in the last 20, 20 years. She doesn't really like to talk about Star Trek, not because she's not proud of it, but because more than anybody else, I think it was a job and she's retired. I think she talked recently to Ben Robinson for the new uh, Voyager book. 
but he said at the time to me, I really wanted to write this episode. It came out of a staff discussion. We'd wanted to do a gay rights story and not been able to figure out how to do it in an interesting science fiction way, Star Trekian way. It came up with the I, it came up with the idea of turning it on its ear, and I really wanted to do it because partly it would be a controversial episode, and I welcome that. The idea of any drama is to touch people's feelings and engage them, whether you make them laugh, cry, angry, as long as you stir something in them, then you've been successful. And I knew this would touch a lot of buttons in people. I'm not a gay person, but as a woman, I do consider myself in particular minority. I know what it feels like to be disenfranchised, not in that precise way. And I felt like I had the touchstone to some of the feelings that must be involved. And I think everyone says the same thing, that there were a lot of, uh, the response to this episode was very strong, both pro and negative. A lot very positive because people admired the fact that Star Trek was dealing with this issue finally. And although the host sort of touched on it as well, sure. you know, it, it didn't get into sort of transgender rights in the way certainly I think it would now. Um, but uh, but the, the host, I think, in a way was almost more ambitious other than the fact that the ending, you know, where Beverly says, you know, I can't quite deal with the fact that you you know, are in a different body. And so I'm going to call off this relationship. Yeah, that was kind of disappointed. Mm -hmm. that was, I was kind of disappointed by that. Um, um, but a great episode. It gave birth to a great Star Trek alien race, the Trill, because of course, not only were the Trill interesting in Next Gen, but then became such a vital part of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, on DS9, we, we had, uh, we had a, a, a same-sex kiss uh, between Dax and I can't remember who she was. But that was startling for the day as well. Uh, and that created a lot of controversy at the time. You know, a, I, a lot. I, go ahead, Doug. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that um, the Trill were a, a more imaginative alien race than sort of the androgynous race in the outcast. But that may also just be a combination of sort of the execution. Were you involved with this makeup uh, design for, for the this race, Doug, or...? No, no. What season was this? This was season season five, four, I think, five. or three. Five. five, five, excuse me, season five. five. I, you know, I may have been in the art department by then, but, uh, you know, it, what's really interesting to me about makeup, uh, the way it was back then and the way it is now, is that um, when you did a makeup back then and maybe the edges on the appliance are showing, or maybe there's a differential between the color of the forehead and someone's face, and or the bull cap is pulling up the back. There's like nothing you could do about it. Right. Whatever is on film, that's it. It records the way it was that day on the set. And if you're not getting help from the DP, it may be actually a pretty good makeup. But it doesn't look like it today. You could fix almost anything and see as a prosthetic, and then the computer takes over. You know, like a character like Vision in the Marvel movies. Right. Uh, and Marvel really has done a lot of amazing stuff, blending CG and makeup together. Uh -huh. Well, the the work on this episode is uh, is is pretty darn good. Uh, I think that uh, you know, camera and uh, makeup were working in sync on this one. Our job, makeup is one of the toughest, toughest jobs uh, on the show. You're there hours before everybody else, and you're there hours after everyone is done. Sure. I have to activate the maneuvering thrusters. Thrusters are responding. But that also creates a very unique relationship between you and the talent, because 
you know, you spend more time, they spend more time with you than virtually anybody else on set. Oh my God, well, you know, when you, when your phone's makeup artist, it's interesting if it's prosthetic, and of course it depends on who the person is, they might start off by hating you. <laughs> that they, you know, you've got them at four in the morning or something like that, you're splashing cold alcohol on them and you're sticking brushes up their nose and they literally will hate you. But then what happens, it's really kind of funny. I liken it to, um, oh, what's the name of that uh, uh, syndrome uh, where you oh, fall yeah. in love with? Uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> yeah. You fall they, in love with your captor. They fall <laughs> in love with you after a while because they realize that you're kind of their mommy, you know? Right. You wipe their nose, you give them a little back massage, you tell them, you help them with their character. That's the other interesting thing is you often will help someone become a character on the show. And... I know it's hard for a lot of people to believe, but we would have actors who came in who were going to be Klingons and they didn't even know what a Klingon was. Right. And so I would, I would have to give them a course in it. And, and I really enjoyed that. I used to, I mean, you know, uh, Kern Worf's uh, brother, you know, I kind of feel like I had a little input on that. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Gowron with his buggy eyes, right. you know, I, I was on stage with him when he first was being Gowron, and I said, oh, man, when you bug your eyes, you look like a thermometer about to pop. You got to keep doing that. And <laughs> he, he played that thing, you know, I mean, who could forget Gowron's eyes? But, yeah, the, uh, working with an actor on uh, on a character is, is a wonderful experience. I don't think I would, I'd want to do makeup again. I did it for 14 years, and like I said, it's one of the hardest jobs on the show, yeah. but I did enough to <laughs> I got my fill, you know. Well, it's kind of when you reach the pinnacle of success in a field, then you want to try something else. It's like, where is yeah. there to go after you've reached the top, you know? And, yeah, and you I didn't did. want to keep doing makeup, you know? I, yeah. But, I, you know, I find that visual effects was a huge amount of fun because you get to, you, you might be a set designer in the computer, and then you light the set, and then you'll set up the camera, and you're just, like, in control, the pacing of the shot, that, you know, especially in Galactica, where we'd have entire sequences um that that's really exciting but you know there's something about and it's not unlike uh, the art department art department you never know what's gonna be thrown at you and and half the fun is uh finding solutions to, to you know problems and uh i i just dig the hell out of the art department that, that's the other thing today visual effects it's uh, we used to have what we did was like a small club of people who were doing a show, and it was that way on TNG as well. Nowadays, you have a bunch of uh, outside vendors. You know, there'll be a visual effects supervisor, and he has like a bunch of outside vendors that are bigger sure. uh, facilities. Right, or and several. I, just, yeah. I did not want to. I didn't want to do that. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, art department is still a small club of people who are working together, you know? For now. <laughs> For now, yeah. Well, soon it'll, it'll all be robots doing it. That would be cool. <laughs> well, it, it's not too late for you to go back and do the Star Trek poster book because I, I kind of see a, uh, the poster being like Gowron with this big, big buggy eyes as number one when you bring it back. You, you'll, that'll be your first poster. Be, uh, <laughs> you got me thinking about that now. Um and then you could, you know, bring back the rules of Fizbin, which was always one of my favorite articles in that. Oh. Um, any, 
And I, I think this poker game, which was a recurring gag in the show, did more to humanize these characters than virtually anything in terms of character development. And it's so simple and easy to do, yeah. uh, you know, um, and, and yet using this as a recurring um, motif, it was nothing that you would have seen in the original Star Trek. So it was uniquely its own next generation's proprietary kind of thing. And of course, you know, the potency of this is illustrated by how much it lands in the finale and all good things. You know, ending with I the was poker just going to mention that. That's such a wonderful scene. Picard sits down and he says, I should have done this a long time ago. You know, it was wonderful, wonderful. And that's one of the few finales to a show that, you know, I think is it's one of the best I've ever seen. Absolutely. There's so few shows that stick to landing. Most shows have sort of unraveled by the end. And, uh, you know, there are very few you can point to and say, wow, they really got it right. And certainly... And that next generation finale only looks better over time too, you know, because the things that bothered me about it at the time, like the excessive reliance on techno babble and things like that, it, it doesn't bother you as much now, you know, it's just like, wow, this is a great character story. You know, what a great way to end the show. How imaginative, how cool. And it really, really is terrific. You know, I love that little panel there. Certainly Mike Okuda, it looks like it's two or three layers of plexi uh, with circuitry on all three, yeah. and so and with lights sandwiched in between the layers, so you get different kinds of shadows, and some things become silhouettes, some things light up, and and there's nothing to it. It's, it's so simple. It's a riff I on his. So much. I mean, now. I, I was going to say it's a it's a riff on his trick in I believe Star Trek Five, where he had these uh, you know sandwiched plexiglass. Uh, 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 L-shaped things that went on the top of the consoles, so it looked like they were opened up and you could work on them. Uh, but it's, it's extremely simple, but very effective. Mike, Mike is is one of the most ingenious guys I've ever met. Uh, you know what we used to do with a caddy of different types of tape. You know we used to keep a caddy of graphic tapes, yeah. L different widths, and we would go in on a set before they shot put all kinds of capsule labels on the walls and add all kinds of wall panels and make it look like they spent another $10,000 right. on a set. It's interesting. Back in those days, you had floor tubes lighting up the panels. Today, you've got tape that has LEDs embedded in it. Yeah. And you just like stick that tape down there. It's just amazing. People forget to... You know, that Star Trek at the time, this was season five, was, okay, it was probably a little over 1.5 million an episode or 1.7, I think, at that time. I mean, which is not a, even then, it was not a huge amount of money. It was a big effect show. It had a big ensemble. By season five, they're all getting paid a lot more than they were in season one, two, and three. You know, it wasn't like all this money to make this show. This is not a particularly expensive show. You compare it now where, you know, budgets for a big sci-fi show could be between 15 and 20 million an episode. That's not inflation. Oh, That's yeah. a huge, huge jump in what is spent they'll, they'll on television. Spending, they'll be spending three or four million on just the visual effects for right. an episode. Right. But, uh, you know, they have that kind of money now because uh, I, it's because you've got subscribers, you know? I mean, Netflix got, you know, zillions of subscribers well, who are paying money in every, and every they're month. not And they're not making 24 episodes a season. Yeah. I think that's the Holy main cow, thing. But they're taking they're taking as much time yeah. to do twelve episodes as they're they taking as I mean, much time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think back now when we were doing like twenty six episodes a year, 
on these shows and, and doing it in like seven days. Yeah. 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 And now you have a lot of these shows which are, are shooting them in considerably more than seven days. Um, you know, depending on the show. I mean, you got to the point where Game of Thrones was was shooting in as much as 25 days. Um, but you, you know, uh, some of the modern sci-fi shows, you know, are, are, are shooting anywhere between nine and 15. And one of the dirty little secrets also of a lot of these shows is they're going back and doing reshoots, which are almost as, as long as the initial principal photography. Right. A lot of these shows, and I won't say which ones, you know, uh, they, you know, they're coming out editorial. They're such a mess that they got to go back and, um, and, and reshoot a bunch of stuff. Right. So, um, you know, and sometimes that's just a luxury. It's, it's great to be able to have that luxury to go back and reshoot. It's not necessarily because it's bad, it's because you can make something better. But um, that's a lot of money and a lot of time. And uh, that's something that the original Star Trek uh, Next Generation couldn't do. I mean, occasionally they would go back because the episodes would be short and they would have to shoot a, a scene to get it to time. But they weren't really going and reshooting things unless it was like the pilot where Carrie McCluggage says, I don't like Scott Bakula's hair. And they had to go reshoot, um, you know, a foot or, or I don't like uh, Kate Mulker's hair. I mean, I was, you know, the, 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 the network, uh, not the network, but the head of the studios, you know, you know, saying I, I want to change that. But now Star Trek didn't do a lot of reshoots. Well, let's let's pause for a second and take a look at how this scene was staged. There's a lot of pages in this scene, maybe like three or four, perhaps. Um, and they've blocked it so that we don't see the outside windows. So they don't have to light the outside uh, shuttle bay, you know. So it saves yep. a whole lot of time. Uh, in shooting these relatively simple setups. And functioning. I estimate it should be yeah, and unlike the shuttlecraft in the original, where the interior was not part of the actual shuttle, right. here, we, as Doug was saying, you see, you can see the interior of the shuttle, which is part of the actual exterior interior of the shuttlecraft with Jalen. There's Jordy with his beard. I just watched a, uh, a, a blooper reel of uh, TNG, and it had Jordy and uh, Data standing there and uh, Data says, well, didn't you used to have a beard? And then, and then uh, LeVar says, yeah, but the producers didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, unlike uh, the famous story with Frakes, where Frakes did not have the beard for a season. And when he came in to see Gene during the hiatus, during the writer's strike before season two, he was wearing a beard just because he didn't want to shave. Right. And, and, and Gene famously said that it looks nautical. And uh, that he liked it, and he decided to keep uh, him with the beard for the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah, it did a lot for him. Did a lot for him. This is a challenge for Robert Shearer, who directed it, because of course we spend so much time in the shuttlecraft, and obviously uh, it doesn't look like they have wild walls. They must have. At least the windows, I'm sure, popped out. The windows did, yeah, but I, there, nothing else was. Yeah. So not not easy to shoot, and he's doing a good job keeping the pace moving here and varying the angles. So you know, even with all these pages and pages of dialogue, it's not getting uh, uh, too uh, lethargically paced. Boy, I love those Elkars panels. They are just so clean and beautiful. And you know, I see a lot of shows today where the the they. Graphics are interchangeable, you know. I mean, yeah. you could use on Hawaii Five O, and then use it on a science fiction show next week. And when you look at what what Okuda came up with, I hear thirty years. I mean, how many thirty something years later? I still see people with it on their phones sure. as their screensaver. If if you visit JPL, you'll see Elcar's graphics all over the place. 
Yeah, it's really it's just clean and functional. What what Mike did is just brilliant because it just immediately, you know, the typeface, the, the graphic design, it says next generation. And then, you know, you, you look at it, you immediately know you're looking at something from next generation. It's so distinctive. And it also feels futuristic. You know, so much of when you look at sci-fi from 30 years ago, you say, oh my God, was this made 50 years ago? You know, or, and it doesn't, it look remotely it date, yeah. dated. Well, you know, I think that this is one of the first I, I, it's, I'm, it, one of the first shows, science fiction shows, that popularized the idea that you wouldn't have buttons anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was just a clean piece of plaque. And it was all to save money, you know. Besides, the, the fact that they didn't use army surplus right. stuff, you know. <laughs> it, it, I mean, on the original series, when you look at those little, you know, uh, acrylic multicolored buttons because they didn't have a lot of money right if they had more money they probably would have used surplus switches and things and absolutely it would have they would have yeah but, you know it's hard it. it's hard to move away from that the you know the buttons because i mean i remember richard taylor on uh, telling me about star trek the motion picture he said that he said look the future is all going to be touchscreen you shouldn't have buttons you know to gene roddenberry and it's like no but i i understand that but it looks better with buttons you know it's like <laughs> we want buttons so you know i get the instinct to like you know, keep the buttons so the stuff for the actors to press as opposed to having the sort of alphanumeric, you know, the, the sort of touchscreen. Although I, it's funny, I always knew that would be the future because unlike most people my age as a kid who had Atari 2600, I had the Odyssey 2, which was also a touch <laughs> keyboard. Right. It was ahead of its time. <laughs> well, going into that a little bit, I think it, it has to go to the point where you have to think, well, are these people going to be able to be looking at their hands all the time? Or do they have to look somewhere else? Because if you're, if you're not looking at your hands, you need some kind of physical representation yes. of where yes. they are yeah. so that you can tell, you know, like an accordion, like, uh, like the, the, TN, uh, the, the motion picture uh, uh, control panels were based on uh, an accordion. Um, and and there's that one little button in the center that you can that you can find with your finger without looking, so you know where your hand is oriented. Yeah. Um, but I, like like on our on our iPhones now, you can't use it unless you're looking at it. Yeah. True. true. Yes. Uh, you know that reminds me of uh, what was it that the, the uh, on the Apollo missions that Gunther Vent, who was the, uh, right. the you know the pad fuhrer. Um, he uh, he said that dials with arms and hands on them were better because you could tell what they were out without actually having to read anything right. by the positions of, uh, of the arms of the dial. Where when you have a digital readout, it's it's easier to make a mistake. Right. Of course, we, we're we're totally moving away from dials, and wow! I mean, you look at the latest SpaceX consoles. I mean, it looks like Star Trek. It really yeah. spectacular. Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually, and I would imagine that in Star Trek's time, you, you're going to have some kind of you know uh, implant in your head that you're going to use to control these things. I mean, uh, I find that my phone tends to anticipate things that I'm going to say. Although it's really funny, I uh, my. My, I was using the voice recognition, and I called somebody Buddy. And oh, and it called I, a friend named Buddy. <laughs> no, I, what it did, it changed it to Bro. Oh, oh my goodness! It, it, 
make me hipper, you know? <laughs> You know, it's so interesting, Doug, what you just said uh, about the, the having something implants in our heads, because, of course, that made me think of, you know, Roddenberry's novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture and the idea that the communicator would actually be an implant in, in your head, which, which makes me think also, as much as we like to joke about his depiction of a sexual relations in the future, you know, new humans and that people would have multiple partners. It, you know, as much as we, we joke about how it's his lasciviousness, it actually is probably a more um, prescient version of the future than uh, even something like this, because, you know, people being polyamorous, people, you know, the idea now that there are all these multiple genders, which is, you know, something that is, you know, very much in the zeitgeist today. And, and it's obviously you know, a long way from where we were in 1990, you know, two in terms of understanding all this stuff, uh, that in a way Roddenberry was kind of ahead of the curve, but then he kind of like didn't really or couldn't address it in, in as much in, in the shows because of course here you're dealing with a, a show where, you know, androgyny is, is, is sort of being posited as, um, I guess, a, a, as a, as a gender or a sex and, um, you know, I just don't, I don't think you can criticize this show for attempting to do something when nobody was attempting to do these oh, totally. types of stories back then. It's funny. I mean, today, uh, we really have like, you know, four or five sexes, you know. Uh, it's, it's so many shades of gray now. Uh, your sex isn't necessarily uh, connected to uh, your plumbing anymore, you know. <laughs> I remember uh, when they were doing Star Trek The Motion Picture, I read um, Roddenberry talking about, about the Deltons, right. saying that they would that a sexual act for them was placing lovely images in your partner's head because they were, you know, partly empathic. Oh, and right, empathic and telepathic, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was so cool. I, you know, I miss, I miss Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, in, in a way, it'd be kind of interesting, all the stuff that he couldn't do to actually see that because it could be done in a Star Trek series now, you know, uh, a lot of stuff that he, you know, that, and again, it, it's so interesting to just look at stuff that seemed crazy when he put it in 1979 in a novelization that actually, you know, I mean, look, I listen to my, my daughter and her friends and there's so much more... Um, aware and educated about sort of all these issues of, you know, transgender rights and about, you know, the different genders and all this stuff than, than, than certainly we are because we, you know, we grew up with the, in this way of thinking. So it's very hard to have your, you know, and, and the whole idea about it evolve. And then of course this becomes, you know, the, she's done something terrible because right. she's, she's not allowed to, um, be with somebody who has a gender. Oh my God, they look like the mutants from Beneath the Planet I of the was Apes. just going to say that, and, and it, <laughs> it looks like there was a limited uh, wig budget for this. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, for sure. That's why wardrobe is, is, is covering yep. uh, so they don't have to do the wigs on them. Yep. Ha, <laughs> that's really... Uh... <laughs> yep. <laughs> you, you know... Orville is, is doing this in a way with the Mocklins, mm -hmm. you know? There's just the one gender. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me a lot of this in many ways. 
Well, I mean, you know, uh, for Seth MacFarlane, uh, Next Generation is such a touchstone for him. I mean, the whole show was inspired by oh, his man. love and yeah. his passion yeah. for Next Generation. So it's not it's not surprising. And that, that's why I really enjoy Orville as such a love letter to Next Gen. I, you know, I really it is, I, totally. I think that. You know, and everything, everything from Marvin Rush to John Debney to you guys to, you know, just so, you know, Frakes directing the first couple of seasons. I, I mean, it's just, you know, the, it's in the DNA of that show, just how much they love. And, you know, Brandon, of course, um, and, and they've done some really great episodes. I mean, I, 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 when we recently did our 101 greatest sci-fi episodes of all time, Identity from the Orville was on the list. So, you know. Which one was Identity? That was the, the, the two-parter where Isaac goes back to his cybernetic uh, uh, race oh, and you find yeah, out yeah, that yeah, he's yeah, been okay. planted there basically to destroy the human race. Yeah. 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 Hey, you know, the one that really uh, stands out for me was the one where Gordon uh, takes the telephone, the cell phone. Do you remember that one? I don't. And he, he creates a holographic... Well, they, they find a bunch of artifacts from the 20th century, and mm. one of them is a cell phone. And they manage to plug into it. Gordon falls in love with this girl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who belonged yeah. to in the 20th yeah. century. And uh, uh, he used it to create uh, a, 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 a holographic representation like the holodeck right. and fell in love with her there. He, he's a wonderful character. I, mean, uh, I, I, love her, I love his character. There's a lot of really warm characters on the show. Mm -hmm. Things that you do with each other. Yeah. Now you want to talk a little bit about Herman Zimmerman because obviously he he isn't given a lot of time to uh, build some of these sets like these council chambers and we saw the garden. Clearly, they weren't on location; they were just in uh, on a stage uh, with um, some plants. No, this one uh, was probably uh, Richard James. This was Richard James by this time. Oh, right, because yeah, Herman, Herman had already gone on the Deep Space Nine. Nine. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I yeah, was a well, big Herman, fan of Richard James because he because worked on the original Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah. Well, Richard James did stuff. You know, I have issues with. For the most part, his work is stunning, and and I think that his stuff tended to look a little more expensive than Herman's did. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, you, you know, like for instance, I thought Richard missed it on the Voyager Bridge. You know, when you look at when you look at Leonard Nimoy, the way he used his tricorder. Everyone else holds the uh, the face, the readout face, to themselves right. as if they're using it. Mm. But Nimoy used to turn it around towards whatever it was he was scanning, so that the fun part of the tricorder was there you for the see, audience. The camera could see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the bridge of the Voyager, everything is like facing the wrong way, in my opinion. You mm. know, the original series and on Next Generation, it was there where everyone could see it. You know, from the front of the bridge, you could look and you could see all the consoles. That's a great Richard point James because has, you see the back of panels facing. Yes. And you, you, yeah, so it's, it's you're seeing flat surfaces with nothing on them. Yeah. I never really thought of that. That's really interesting. I think that, that that was a misfire. And I love, I think the guy's brilliant, but I thought that was a misfire. My other comment about the bridge on Voyager is that when they did consoles on Next Generation, which was set up, you know, by Herman started to look, they had a lot of freestanding consoles that were like they defied gravity. You know, right. it's like if you looked at that transporter console, the way it worked, it looked like it defied gravity. It was floating. The, uh, the, the you know, Con and Ops was the same way. Yeah, much when like, much like the Magic. Voyager. 
Yeah, much like Matt Jeffries did with the uh, in the table in uh, exactly in um, the medical yeah. center and things like that. All these totally. can cantilevered cantilevered the design. Voyager, I don't know what to do. Yes, the Voyager consoles are like big heavy ice cream freezers. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so I, I I thought that was a that was a misfire, but on the but I'm saying that he has done some of his stuff was just through the roof wonderful. So their minds are set. You know that fish back there never came out when, <laughs> when the crew was shooting. It would hide behind. You know, I, they could have gotten one of those. You ever see those little fish that uh, it looks almost real and it's got a bubble up thing under it, so it's like moving around. Oh, they right. could have gotten one of those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, Livingston. Yeah, Livingston they named it Livingston. Never came right. out. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's right. After, yeah. Uh... yeah. David probably after <laughs> after uh, David Livingston, yeah. the uh, line producer yeah. and occasional director. Now, one thing well, that I, I've noticed in watching these episodes uh, after a while is the the marvelous array of different kind of chairs that they sit in, because it's not an easy thing to get chairs mm -hmm. that look futuristic, futuristic and yeah. are you know affordable. You know that's the main thing. Because sourcing these things is very difficult, and if you if you run out of car seats, then you're kind of out of luck unless you're really really clever. <laughs> That's so funny you say that, Darren, because I had exactly that conversation on set on Pandora, yeah. where we we where we finished the bridge, and I was like, it looks like you went to Office Max Sophia to get these right. chairs. I said these are not going to fly because yeah, exactly. Finding chairs that look futuristic but are still functional is not easy. And we ended up making a bunch of changes on them because uh, I was not happy with them. And it's funny because these you chairs, know, these chairs at that table, I I have that I have a set of those chairs at home, which oh, is odd. Really? <laughs> well, and I just know, noticed it now. Uh, and James Cauley wants Jimmy, them now. He's calling, probably. Oh really? Jimmy Meese, who was the set decorator yeah. on Next Gen, was brilliant. He 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 gave the Enterprise such an elegant feel uh, and he used plants and you know and I, I find that often the shows are too hardware oriented mm -hmm, right. you know you can't I, in my opinion every corridor shouldn't be aluminum you know that was the other thing I, I loved about the sets that they were warmer they were earth tones right. they weren't all metallic yeah it's a very warm and inviting show you know you know and in that way you know enterprises which you also worked on is such a counterpoint because they went the opposite direction. The idea right. being that it, it was early and that it was much more akin to the current space program where there, it's not roomy and it's not comfortable and luxurious. The, the sets on the shows were so beautifully built and so well built. They were made to last. They, they, weren't, they weren't cheap. I mean, the Enterprise sets were, you know, I mean, that bridge is really, was engineering on Enterprise was a spectacular engineering and it was a nod to the original series engineering with the split level right and mm -hmm. the idea that the warp core was horizontal we always thought that the warp core in the original series was under the floor horizontal mm. running back into that kind of cathedral area uh and that that unit in the center that the dilithium crystals came out that rose out of was the front of the intermix chamber uh now here's here's the the twist on this. You know, Riker wants to be the hero and and rescue uh, rescue them, and she doesn't. You know, they don't want to. 
you know, they are, are entrenched in their society and this is how it works. And, you know, the, uh, the forced uh, uh, mores of the Federation people is not going to change that. Mm-mm. Oh, he's baffled. He's totally, yeah. he's in shock. Crusher could treat you and bring you back to the way you were. Why would I want that? Talk about a successful cast, the next generation cast. So inviting, so much fun. I mean, they were, they were, oh my God. I mean, getting to be a makeup artist on the show is you got to see how silly and funny they were all the time. I mean, I don't, I rarely saw them do a rehearsal where they didn't cut up during the rehearsal. But as soon as they called action, that was- Warp six. I think when you have a cast after all these years that still gets together, that still goes out and 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 is still friendly, that that yeah. you know that you know, most oh, casts don't want to see each other, you know, the second they wrap, let alone thirty years <laughs> later. Yeah, no, they really, really had great affection for one another, and they laughed all the time. John, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> the captain was very stuffy for the first few years of the show. And they finally turned him around and made him just as silly yeah. as they were. And he'll tell you that in, in interviews that Absolutely. they changed me. Absolutely. He 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 admitted that he was sort of a a, a frozen jerk when uh, when he, he when he first came on <laughs> and uh, they they broke him down. Yeah, they totally broke him down. It's wonderful and and he and he loves them for it yeah. because he's learned to enjoy life more. Yeah, which is great. He's no longer that guy from um, Life Force and Excalibur. He's the guy from he's the guy from Extras, and you can see everything. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, and I saw it all. It was right out there, and I saw everything. That was hilarious. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's great. Well, listen, uh, Doug, this is great. I really appreciate you joining us. And that a great fun. episode to pick. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've watched this, and. Um, it definitely it definitely holds up and asks a lot of interesting questions and that's what Star Trek at its best when it leaves you wanting to discuss it yes. after the episode is over. Sometimes we want to ask more questions rather than answer. <laughs> 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 oh, but I told you there. we really should be doing a, you know the great Mojave chase for Have Gun Will Travel. The problem is no oh. one will have it to watch along with us at home. Yeah, they had it on Prime for a few years, and then it went away. Yeah, it was on uh, Netflix yeah, for a while, and I'm sure you have that great uh, that great DVD set that I have as well. Yeah, but yeah, not a lot of other people yeah. probably have that the complete series. Yeah, yeah. It, it it you know I if I was if I was CBS Paramount, I would put together you know a Roddenberry collection that's you know three or four of Roddenberry's best episodes yeah uh, and then you have people like us who do a commentary track totally. on it and talk about i mean th- uh, i think it was molly mcguire uh, and put it on blu-ray travel where and put it on blu-ray yeah, uh, exactly. there's an episode where uh, uh uh um paladin ends up uh basically mugged by a bunch of highway men mm-hmm. and he finds his way to a ranch house where there's a stuck-up woman uh, and her maid, and uh, it's it's such a there's so many Star Trek bits in there, where basically Paladins seduces her by being wonderful and reading poetry to her, and, right. and there's even a scene in it that's almost right out of 
uh, the cage. Absolutely. You know, where they go horseback riding. And it's, yep. it's, Everything but it, tango I, is in that scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And then at the end where he, he <laughs> leaves and the two women are standing there and it's that moment where the alien was, I will watch the stars, James right. E. Kirk, yeah, and I will just remember. Yeah, it's the same thing, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm getting chills <laughs> just thinking. Really well, you go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, again, Doug, thank you so much for joining us for the briefing room. Briefing room we, we do every oh, couple fun. of weeks as part of the Inglorious Trexperts uh, podcast. You can listen to our other podcasts as well, uh, Best Movies Never Made, 430 Movie, and Disco Nights, which covers Contemporary Trek with Chase Masterson and Ryan Britt. But uh, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts, and we'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode. Until then, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Thank you very much, Doug Drexler. Thank you, Darren Doctorman. The briefing room is now closed. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.